it is a little bit of a longer psalm. And uh, so I'm only going to ask you to read one verse with me this morning. Can you handle that? One verse that, that I, I think kind of brings into focus what is being said in the overall psalm. And then I'm going to kind of treat this psalm almost like a topical sermon on the fatherhood of God. A, a kind of a treatise, if you will, on, on the doctrine of the fatherhood of God. And if you're taking notes or if you just want to know when I'm about done... Let me give you my points so you can keep up with me and kind of know where we're at. Um, I'm going to break the psalm down into these kind of sections. Uh, first, I want to talk about the Father's gift of liberty in verses 1 through 2, or liberation. And then I'm going to talk about our Father's identification with our brokenness in verses 3 through 6. Our Father's grace toward our sin in verses 7 through 12. Our Father's mercy toward our weakness in verses 13 through 16. I find that the concept of the fatherhood of God is often misunderstood. And because of various misunderstandings, this, this very powerful concept is often neglected or at least underappreciated in the church. And I think it's partly due to the fact that we find ourselves in an age with a large portion of our population growing up without a father. This is kind of a unique time in American history, if you will, the, the, the epidemic of fatherlessness. And, and that epidemic has affected the way we view this doctrine of the fatherhood of God. The fatherhood of God is, is a powerful doctrine that should never be ignored. If for no other reason than the great amount of emphasis that Jesus put on the topic, especially in how we pray. Jesus told us that when we pray, we are to pray to our Father. Look at verse 13. This is the one verse I want you to read with me. Josh puts it up on the screen for you. Read this along with me. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. David here is giving us a glimpse of what would be revealed completely through Jesus. The fatherhood of God is, is not a, a well-developed or, or, or a fully developed concept in the Old Testament. If all you had was the Old Testament, you, you would not have a good understanding of the fatherhood of God. It wasn't until the New Testament and Jesus' teachings that, that through him, God could be our father. And I want to walk through what this psalm has to say this morning about the fatherhood of, of God. And my goal is that you leave here this morning with, with a deeper appreciation for the doctrine of the fatherhood of God. It's, it's important, and it's importance in our lives because many of you have grown up without a dad. And, and with that comes all sorts of distrust of even the idea of fatherhood, the, it's amazing to me as I'm counseling how many people struggle just to call God 
Father. And maybe for some of you, it wasn't even until you became a father that you even began to get a a small glimpse of, of what this doctrine of the fatherhood of God could look like. What the significance of the fatherhood of God was like. And when you became a Christian, maybe, maybe you had trouble reconciling, calling God Father. I think this is why so many Christians in our generation are more comfortable talking about Jesus than talking about their Father. And listen, we, we should be absolutely driven and compelled by Jesus. After all, there's no other name under the sun by which we can be saved. But the problem you will run into is if your focus is, is just on Jesus and not the Father, is going to be in your prayer life. And, and maybe some of you struggle in your prayer life, and, and this may be the reason why. It's because unlike what Jesus told you to do, which is when you pray, pray like this, our Father in heaven, many people that I've talked to just, just struggle with, with ever saying Father. And instead, they always just kind of, they're, they're, they're praying to Jesus, hoping that Jesus will talk to the Father on their behalf if there is a Father. This is something we must wrestle with this morning. We, we need to wrestle through and we need to learn what the Scripture has to say about the fatherhood of God. David in this psalm gives us an incredible picture of what God the Father is like. What the Bible teaches is, is at the center of the universe, there's a relationship between a father and a son. Everything revolves around that relationship. And, and I believe in the heart of all of us, because we're made in the image of God, there is a yearning for that father's love and approval. I base that on many things that you find in God's Word, but not just what I see in God's Word, what I see in the world in which I live. Just, just opening my eyes and looking around, I, I see this truth that inside of us there is a desire for a father's love and a father's approval. If that weren't true, there wouldn't be cults. One of my dear friends is here with us this morning, and she grew up in a cult. And I know for Lake City, that's not because a lot of people did. But the difference about my friend is that her dad was the cult leader. And they would recruit young people looking for fathers, looking for someone to love them and approve of them. And to tell them that they were worthy. And they would draw these young people into their cult. They would then send those same young people back out. Searching, looking for other young people. People that they recognized were missing something in their life. They, they were missing that love and approval of a father, and they would then recruit them and invite them to come and be a part of that cult with them. And like all cults over time, 
it shifted into a, a, a place of wickedness and abuse and, and just horrors that were unimaginable. But here's the thing, guys. That same story plays out over and over and over again. If you spend any time studying cults, you, you see this same pattern. Why? Because deep inside of each and every one of us is a desire to be loved and approved of by our fathers or whoever we claim our fathers to be. Cult leaders know that inside of our hearts is this desire. And they, they play on that desire to get what they want. For most of us, when we think about the fatherhood of God, we, we fall into one of two schools of thought. First, we, we think of our earthly father that was far from perfect. Or, or again, like I've said, for so many of you, you didn't even have one. Mom raised you, or grandma raised you, or grandpa raised you. There, there was no father in your life. Or second, if, if you had a relatively good father, you tend to think of God in terms of your earthly father and how he treated you. And whether you realize it or not, that, that relationship has tainted in some ways the way you view God. But I would argue this morning that Scripture goes far beyond those two categories. Beyond the best earthly father figure that you ever had or the worst father figure you ever had. God's Word pushes us so much deeper into this idea of the fatherhood of God. And the fact is, is when we truly understand the fatherhood of God, it would be represented in the way that we live. In other words, once, once we begin to understand what it really means to have a father who loves us and approves of us, it changes our behavior. It changes the way we live Sunday to Sunday. The fatherhood of God should affect our faith. The fatherhood of God should change the habits of our souls. The fatherhood of God should lead us into deeper levels of trusting Him. The fatherhood of God should sustain us when life is challenging. Because if you think about it, isn't that what you wanted as a child? See, I, I, I've tried to train my girls from a very early age that they can trust me. These are the sermons they hate, where I talk about them, by the way. And they're, 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 they're to the point now where I run it all past them first. But their faith in me was almost unconscious when they were little. It was just there. They just, they just had faith in me. But, but as they got a little bit older, I would always try to put them in situations where they would have to learn to trust me. I would ask them, do you trust that I want what's best for you? So even though my kids didn't always like surprises, and they still don't, 
I wanted to prepare them for life because I love them. Because if you've been living for very long, you know you can't script life. You can't schedule life. As much as we try to, as much as our hearts desire it, life throws us a curveball. And we've got to be prepared for that. Otherwise, we, we run and, and we struggle in those moments to trust God because it didn't go the way we thought it should go. And, and so I would try to create those moments in their life. I, I would plan a whole day for them. Wouldn't tell them what we were doing. And then I would ask them, are you excited about today? To which, you know, they're like, well, that depends. Is it a day of cleaning? Is it a day of, like, what, what kind of day do you have planned for me? But then I would ask them, do you trust your dad? Do you trust that I want nothing but the best for you? And, and I mean, why should they trust me? Well, they knew I provided for them. They knew I cared for them. I, to the best of my knowledge, they never went hungry. I wanted them to learn that they could trust me because I knew ultimately one day they were going to have to learn to trust their heavenly father. And their heavenly father doesn't always tell you what you're going to be doing in advance. It's probably a good thing he doesn't because most of us would never do it. And I wanted them to get that and to learn that lesson. But listen, these lessons don't even compare to how God is our Father. I mean, I am a poor reflection, even on my absolute best day, of what God the Father is. What I want you to understand this morning is that the difference is that, that our Father is a holy Father. And that we can only know him through his son and the cross. Because the best earthly dad knows nothing of dealing with sin, of dealing with the, the, the wrath and the judgment that we all face because of that sin. But our father, because of his great love for us, his, his holy love displayed through Jesus Christ and through the cross reconciled those things so that we don't have to taste them. We, we don't have to taste death because of what our Father did for us. And, and that sets him apart from every other father. No matter how great they are, the, the best earthly father is, is just a poor reflection of what God, our Father, is like as seen through Jesus. But he can't be known apart from Jesus. And that's why Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. What he's saying is that the, the fatherhood of God is only experienced when you are in the Son. When we are in the Son, the work of Christ on the cross, 
that, that the Father, the Son are, are working together to bring about redemption and reconciliation in our broken world. You see, the difference between God our Father and the best earthly father is that our Father put forth a redemptive plan for people that hated him and wanted nothing to do with him. People that rebelled against him over and over and over again. You, you see, that is different. That This morning, if you have put your faith in Jesus, it's important to understand how Jesus reveals the fatherhood of God. 1 John 3, 1, it says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And we're told in Romans 8.15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So, so why is there a disconnect in so many of our lives between our relationship with Jesus and our relationship with the Father? Well, why doesn't the fatherhood of God excite us the way it ought to. I think it's because our idea of fatherhood is too tied to what we've experienced in our own lives, whether that's good or bad, rather than what has been experienced and revealed by the Holy Spirit. As we have trusted in the Son who, who actually gives us access to the Father. And, and this psalm opens up for us what God the Father is like, and when we pray to the Father, you should have these gifts in mind. The, the psalm begins with our, our Father's gift of liberation. The psalmist is, is praising God for the liberation that he has experienced through knowing him. Notice here, David is, is singing to himself. There's an inner monologue going on here. This is, this is not necessarily something he's singing in front of a, a large group of people. This is something he's reflecting on in his own heart. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Like David does here in this inner monologue. We, we must use our minds and our memories to ignite our emotions. When, when the gloom and the doom surround us and, and life invades us with, with all kinds of troubles, we need to remind ourselves. We need to sing to ourselves. In the beginning of this song is a is a reminder that as children of God, we, we must remember that we need our Father. See, we're taught in life as you grow into adulthood that you, you, you move beyond childish dependence. And we move into maturity as independent adults, no longer dependent on earthly fathers. And see, this is, this is what I mean when I say that that our view of God and our understanding of the fatherhood of God is often impacted by what we experience. 
Because even subconsciously sometimes there's a part of us that thinks, well, I need to be maturing to a place where I am less dependent upon God that if I just read my Bible enough and if I just pray enough, if I just do the right things, But our spiritual father is someone that we are to continue to be dependent upon just like a small child. I'm not talking about childishness. I'm talking about childlikeness. Every morning when we wake up, there should be a a childlike dependence toward our heavenly father. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. David reminds us that we should begin each day by reminding ourselves of our complete and utter dependence upon our Heavenly Father. You see, that's exactly what David is doing. Bless the Lord, O my soul. He's reminding himself that regardless of his circumstances, that there is a God who cares. That there's a God in heaven who is our Father. And the crazy thing is, David didn't even fully understand this idea yet. And yet, he blesses his holy name. Now, for us as Christians, we look at this psalm through the lens of the New Testament. where David is looking forward in faith toward the Messiah that he didn't know yet. But we look back in faith as as people that are inhabited by the very Spirit of Christ. We look back at the psalm. We know the holy name. The holy name is Jesus. In Matthew 28, 19, Jesus says, Go, baptize people in the name. Notice, he says names, or he says name, not names. Go, baptize in the name, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That name there is singular. It's not plural. Isn't it interesting? It's like asking God, what's your name? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's my name. But if you think about this name, it shows you how to pray, right? We, we pray to the Father, our Father in heaven, through the Son, in the name of Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, because unless we be born again, we shall, be, we shall by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. That is how we should begin every day. We come to the Father. Jesus gives us access to the Father, and the Spirit guides us into what it is that we ought to say. It's so powerful when Jesus taught the disciples how to pray. In Matthew 6, he says, Go into your room and shut the door and pray. And notice that there's a a hint of an inner monologue there, right? Privately pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees. Aren't you so glad we got a Father that sees? Your your Father knows he's omnipotent. omnipotent. (laughs) I can't talk this morning. He understands everything about you. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. They think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. Sometimes I I feel like people are just buttering up God when I listen to them pray. He he just just wants you to talk to him. You don't have to know any religious fancy words. Just talk, be honest to him. Don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. There there it is again, be your name. But notice that that David says after this, he says, bless his holy name, bless the Lord. There again, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Why do we need to come to the Father every day? Because our natural tendency, the, the natural tendency of the human heart is to forget to remember. That, that's, that's the natural inclination and direction of the human heart. It's, it's one of the greatest problems, the greatest issues that we struggle with. If it's not in front of us, we don't remember it. Right? We have a saying for it, right? Out of sight, out of mind. Well, listen, that's incredibly challenging when we worship a God that you cannot see. But faith, is vision of the soul. So we direct the gaze of the soul upon a God who is before us, who's present and available to us. And so we, we come before him and we are called to remember. What are we called to remember? We're called to remember the benefits, the, the blessings that, that he has given to us in our lives. That that he is a father who provides. And sadly, many of us in our day, in our daily life, we forget God. The the fatherhood of God has little to no impact on our daily lives. So David is telling us that we need to remind ourselves that we need God. That we need our heavenly father who has blessed us so much. David is reminding himself here of Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 14. Take care lest you forget the Lord, your God, by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes. Notice forgetfulness leads to what? Disobedience. Deuteronomy continues, which I command you, Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, once you get that good job, once you fill up that bank account, once you build your house that you've always been dreaming of, the temptation for every single person, is to forget God. And it's important to remember that that Israel is is an archetype of every nation, of every people group. People who were once enslaved by their own sinfulness and then set free by Jesus. 
But the moment Jesus sets you free, often we enter into times where we forget that we still need the Father every single day. Just because you have a season of peace and prosperity or abundance even, doesn't mean you can let your guard down. And you don't need your Heavenly Father anymore. Because listen, we are by nature prodigal. And will always be. And praise God that our relationship to the Father is not dependent upon our performance, but upon Jesus. But we remind ourselves because our joy and contentment come only when we place ourselves in the fact that this is a theology of liberty. We, we thank God, our Father, for the fact that He has set us free through His Son. We must forget it, or we must not forget it, because the moment we forget it, is the moment we become enslaved again. David says, bless the Lord. But how do we bless the Lord? How do we bless our Father? Have you ever slowed down to think about that? Is blessing the Father just saying the words? Is that enough? I mean, I think proclamation of blessing is a part of what David is saying here, but I don't think it's the whole of it. So if there's more, how do we bless the Lord? Do, do we bless the Lord when we simply do what is right? Let, let me make this more concrete, maybe. Am I blessed as a father when my girls make the president's list or the vice president's list at the college? I mean, those are great achievements. But if, if they continue to make the president's list and the vice president's list, and they study hard, but they never wanted to spend any time with me. They never wanted to talk to me. I would not feel very blessed. Great achievements, I want those things for them. But apart from a relationship, I'm not blessed. What I, what I love is when my girls love me and, and just want to spend time with me. What I love is when I, I see my girls caring for their friends and, and, and they're praying for their friends and they're showing compassion to those that are often overlooked by others. That, that blesses me as a father. See, so many parents make the mistake of trying to break the will of their children this is a side-free parenting note. The goal of parenting should never be trying to break your child's will. The goal of parenting should be instead training the will of the child. I want obedience from my daughters. But I, want, but I don't want their obedience without heart and without a relationship. And that's what happens when you try to break the will of your child. And I think that's something that we forget with our God, with our Father. 
God is blessed when we remember that, that He's our Father. And, and what He wants is that we would turn to Him. Matthew 7, 11 says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? The reason I say that it's because some of you, or excuse me, the reason I say that is because some of you had fathers that were never proud of you. And, and, unless you did everything right according to their standard. But that's not how our Heavenly Father is. That's not what He's like. What He wants from us is a willingness to come to Him and say, actually... <laughs> I don't have it all figured out. I don't have my act together. I don't have my house in order. I need your help. I desperately need you. That's how your Father in heaven is. Not only do we see in these first verses, the first two verses, our Father's gift of liberation, but in verses 3 through 6, our Father's identification with our brokenness. Notice what David says in verse 3. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. Who deems your life, who, excuse me, who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for those who are oppressed. I want you to notice all of the things that David reflects on about God. What he's showing us is that it would require God to identify with our brokenness to be able to fix it. That, that he would have to go into the messiness of our lives. And so his faith in his father is that this father is, is willing to deal with David's sinfulness. It's willing to deal with the sickness. It's willing to bring redemption from death. And that there's hope in life. This, this father will crown him with steadfast love. That there will be convenient or covenant faithfulness no matter what. That, that his father's mercy is new every day. That his father would be the source of his energy. That he alone would be his satisfaction. That, that he would be his portion. But in order for God to do those things, he would have to identify in some way with David's brokenness. And what's powerful about these verses is David is making all sorts of declarations that he could not have understood how it would be accomplished. And this is why, again, the Old Testament is looking forward by faith. The writers of the Old Testament didn't fully understand, but as guided by the Spirit, it's all pointing toward Jesus. So how would God forgive iniquity? God does not have a, a weak love like so many of us do that, that simply turns the other cheek and refuses to look at man's iniquity. David was, was confident that there would be a way in which God would be able to work this forgiveness. David had confidence that, that though the world completely overrun with sickness and disease, that God was somehow going to 
to be a healer of his creation and his people. That though death touches everything, that somehow God would redeem our life, even from the pit. There's almost a glimmer there of the resurrection in what David says. That God would crown him with steadfast love and mercy even though there had been moments of rebellion in his own life. That that God's faithfulness to his own character would surpass David's weakness somehow. What is powerful about that is that the Father's identification with our brokenness is directly connected to our Father's character. And we can claim these verses even more fully than David who wrote them. Because we know what the Father did to accomplish all these things through Christ. That the only way that the Father was able to forgive was through the Son identifying Himself fully with humanity. It would require the Word becoming flesh. The way that the Father was able to redeem each of us from death was that the Son would have to absorb death into Himself. The only way that He could crown us with steadfast love and mercy and not judge us all and send us all to hell was that He he had to absorb that curse and that condemnation. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. He had to absorb all of that into himself. The only way that he could satisfy us and and fill us with vitality that is is energizing and life-giving would be through sending us his spirit, which would require first the sending of his son. See, David is prophetically looking forward. Our Father identifies with our brokenness. David doesn't know how God is going to do it, but David trusted his heavenly Father. Do you trust your heavenly Father this morning? After all, we we have a more complete picture. We, We understand God's plan to send Jesus, his Son. Even without that, David proclaims this kind of faith And all he had was the law. David's getting pumped on God reading Leviticus. Now, some of y'all are trying to read through the Bible in a year, and you're kind of getting bogged down in Leviticus right now, and you're you're learning all about why you don't mix cotton and wool together when you make clothes. David's reading that and going, bless the Lord! That's all he's got. We've got the Gospels. We've got Jesus. We've got the whole story. David is revealing here not only God's goodness and his willingness to deal with these things, but what he's also really declaring is how incredibly depraved the human heart is. Because if the heart wasn't as messed up, it wouldn't need forgiveness. We we wouldn't need redemption. We, We wouldn't need steadfast love because we would be able to perform it on our own. And, you know, the funny thing is when you read literature... Most of the writers in the 20th century, even they knew this. They they understood that there was a problem with man's heart. Even if they were Christians, even if they wanted nothing to do with God, 
they still seem to understand that there's a massive problem with the human heart. That's where T.S. Eliot got this concept of hollow people. That, that apart from something invading and life-changing, men were hollow, in need of something. I believe we find the remedy in the gospel for our heart condition, for our hollowness that we experience. Which brings me to the next part, our Father's grace toward our sin. Because God's willingness to identify with our brokenness was revealed through Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says that, that, our sympathetic, that he is our sympathetic high priest. That he was tempted in all ways, but without sin. And so he understands, he has identified himself fully with us. He did something about the problem. And our Father's grace toward our sin, Jesus becomes the explanation of that. Verses 7 through 12, He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as from as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Oh, man, what a, what a beautiful set of verses. Notice that David says that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Let me ask you a question. Do you, do you know why he says this about the Father? I'll give you a hint. He's quoting the most quoted scripture in scripture. You know where that comes from? Exodus 34, 6. In this passage, Moses asked the Lord to show him his glory. And he says, no one can see me and live, but, but I'll put you in the cleft of a rock. I'll put you behind this rock and I will allow my glory to pass by, all my goodness pass by you. And so God takes Moses and he puts him in the cleft of the rock, and there passes over him and declares to the Lord what he is like. And what does he say? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Have you ever wondered what the first thing does about himself? So you might be tempted to think that the first thing that he would say about himself is how powerful he is, how holy he is. And he could, because he is all those things, and so much more. But this is the first thing God tells humanity about himself. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is what our Father is like. And it goes even farther in this psalm saying that his anger will not stay forever. Which is why a couple of weeks ago I talked about the strange ministry of the anger of God. It's strange in the sense that it is temporary. It is not a permanent fixture in God's life. There is coming a time where he will cease to be angry because there will cease to be sin. 
and we'll understand more fully this merciful and gracious God. Notice he uses the illustration of the children of Israel again in their rebellion in the wilderness and their unwillingness to trust God, to trust, to truly trust in God. And they are the, the finding themselves in, in all sorts of problems. And yet here David says, you're not going to stay angry forever. When it says he's slow to anger, the, the phrase literally means that he can hold his anger. That, that he leans toward the side of mercy and grace. Isn't that incredible? Because a lot of you probably grew up in a house where the father couldn't hold his anger. But our father's grace toward us. When we, when we talk about love, we, we usually mean it in a very weak way, but God's grace it means a holy love. It's a love that dealt with sin through self-giving and through self-sacrifice. And so here we have this powerful verse that he will not repay us according to our iniquities. It's what we deserve. And yet we have this merciful father who says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to give you what you deserve. Remember though, David had no idea how this would occur. We, we must elevate our understanding of God's love beyond the way our fathers did or did not love us. God's love is about so much more. It's about grace. It's about the holiness of God. It's about God's holy love colliding with our guilt. God's love is all about the cross. We don't understand the fatherhood of God until we come to Jesus through the cross. Notice that David is trusting that God is somehow not only going to be able to forgive sin, but he's somehow going to be able to, to literally put it away. None of us can do that. You, you, you may be able to forgive, but you can't even forget. None of us have ever absorbed the consequences of our sins and the sin of ourselves. And most definitely, We've never done that for our enemies. And yet, that's what our Father is like. God is holy. So when, when we talk about God's love, His, His grace towards us, we're, we're talking about a Father dealing with hell, with the curse and, and, and with the wrath. We're, we're talking about Him eradicating that through the sacrifice of Jesus. That is incredible. In some ways, it's beyond our comprehension. The Father's forgiveness is found at the cross where His, His holiness and our guilt collided. It allowed Him to maintain His holiness and also be able to forgive sinners. It allowed us to become children. We, we used to sing a song that was called Kids, and it talked about us being kids of grace and I just I love that song because it just pictures what's happening here. It pictures that the he that knew no sin became sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might become the kids of grace, the children of God. Which brings me to the next section, our father's pity toward our weakness. And I love this, as a father shows compassion, in verse 13, to his children, 
So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. When David talks about God's love, the Hebrew word is hesed. We've talked about this many times in the Psalms. It's it's the word he uses so many times about God's covenant faithfulness. We, We translate it as steadfast love, but it literally means covenant faithfulness. God's absolute faithfulness to what he has committed himself to. The ultimate fulfillment of that covenant is found through the sending of Jesus. The the sureness of that should give us strength. It, It should allow us to come to our Father in our weakness and trust that He will that we will receive mercy from Him. The, The Father's mercy is new every day. And we rejoice in that mercy because it's found only through the cross. Despite all of our brokenness and all of our weaknesses, this psalm reminds us that in Jesus, His Father is now our Father. That He has made Himself responsible for our whole existence. That through Jesus, the Father has made Himself responsible for our whole existence. Because He knows we are but dust. He knows our lives are marred to the earth and then going back to the earth. Our Father, however... His love goes beyond the grave and promises even life after the grave. How great His love is. Our our Father's love actually brings life out of death. God's mercy, and and remember, we, we need His mercy, right? Because we are and will always be prodigals. I think it's important to remember that. Now look at verses 17 through 19. As we come to the end, we we see our Father's faithfulness to His Son. And I'll explain why I say Son in a moment, but let's let's just listen to it. But the, the steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children. To those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Let me start this section by asking you a question. Who is righteous? Who among you has kept his covenant? Who among you has remembered to do his commandments? What does Romans tell us? Or Romans tells us that there is None who are what? Righteous. We we see the power of this is is that our Father's faithfulness to Jesus. And here's why this is good news. You see, if Jesus had not come, these verses would be meaningless to us. Because none of us are righteous. None of us fear Him. None of us keep His covenant. None of us perfectly remember His commandments. Because if Jesus had not come, this this set of verses would be incredibly discouraging. Without Jesus, these verses lead only to religion. Religion is, is man's attempt to be righteous and trying to fulfill a covenant that he cannot keep 
and keeping commandments that he consistently breaks. Yet, what we find in these verses is that God's steadfast love goes to his people. That was Jesus. That's why the gospel makes so much sense. Because religion says, live like this and God will accept you. The gospel says, God has accepted you, now live like this. And if you haven't figured that out by now, then I, I promise you, you haven't experienced the fatherhood of God. You don't understand this concept. If you want to experience the fatherhood of God, you cannot experience it until you put your faith in Jesus. And know that even your faith is a gift given to you by our Heavenly Father. We may deny God, but He cannot forget us. Being Father, He is faithful by His nature and His goodwill toward us. And that's unchangeable. And that's true because of Jesus' work on the cross. So we come to the Father through the Son, through the Father's faithfulness to the Son. When we come before the Father, how do we know that our sins are forgiven? It's because He doesn't view us through the lens of who we are. He views us through the lens of who we are meant to be in His Spirit, in His Son. All who are in Him, we're told. They've been chosen before the foundation of the world. Who was the one that was chosen before the foundation of the world? The Son. The question for you this morning is, are you in Him? Because if you're in Him, you have free access to this Father. The Father is always faithful to the Son. He is our Father and we are His children. And I want to make sure you leave here this morning and you get that. The reality comes only by the virtue of our relationship to His Son. When we realize that, when we finally understand that, we can put to death our self-effort. Instead, we are driven to our knees at the foot of the cross. The cross is where we find what fatherhood is really like. You won't fully discover what God the Father was like by being a father. It'll help. It'll give you glimpses. But you'll discover what God the Father is like by falling in love with Jesus. Jesus will open up the heart of the Father to you in ways that you never expected, and you'll find yourself waking up and singing like David in verses 20 through 22, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of the Lord. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Why? Because as verse 13 says, the father shows compassion to his children. And the Holy Spirit groans within his children, crying, Abba, Father. The Spirit is our guarantee that we are His and that He is our Father. We should cast ourselves in utter dependence upon the Father every morning. We pray to the Father through the Son and the Spirit. If you don't know Jesus, start there this morning. Understand the Father until you know Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. That he is the great mediator between man and God. 
He's the door. He's the one who draws us right into the very heart of God. He was God. He has made God seen in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. And for us, that is an incredible thing. It's what makes the gospel completely unique. Our God, the, the, the God our Father loves us, He cares for us, and He forgives us. My hope and my prayer today is that you would know this love and that you would begin to experience this love today. I pray that the fatherhood of God would become a reality in your life this morning. Let's pray and prepare our hearts for communion. Father, Father, we, we love you and we thank you for your innumerable gifts to us. Father, I, I pray for all of the people in this room who, who woke up this morning and before they came here, their default position was believing and thinking that you are an angry God instead of a merciful God. A God who, through self-sacrifice, sent your only son to die for his enemies. What a merciful God you are. And Father, this morning I, I pray that, that we would lean in to this, this concept of the fatherhood of God and that every morning we would wake up and, and, and profess and proclaim our dependence upon you. And Lord, you, you would lay waste to our, our attempts of, of man-made religion and, and self-effort God, and instead you would empower us by your Spirit to know that we are loved and accepted because of what your Son has done, not what we have done. And because of that acceptance, then we would live our lives differently. That we would, we would bless you, Lord, by wanting to spend time with you. By, by wanting to, to listen to you by reading your word. By growing in our faith towards you. And Father, all that's possible because of the sacrifice and the resurrection of your son. 